0: Do you want the title? The first one I'm going to read.
1: I'm writing this from my mother's apartment.
0: It's called Orange.
1: All I could think about was being written into her life story.
0: She made up a story back What was the inspiration daughter. for the story? My story is called Cigarettes. What was the genesis? I, I used to be almost year. dependent Dear B. on a voice. Speaker in a poem. I want to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> and the conversation starts. Hello, and welcome to Off the Page, a podcast of stories, essays, and poetry from the Stanford University writing community. In each episode, a Stanford author will read a piece of their writing and then talk to us about their craft and process. I'm Mark Lebowski, Jones Lecturer in the Creative Writing Program. Dominic Russ Combs welded industrial models in Durham, North Carolina, before publishing his first stories and being awarded both a Stegner Fellowship and an Emerging Artists Award from the Kentucky Arts Council. His fiction has appeared in the Chicago Tribune, Kenyon Review, Carolina Quarterly, Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine, among others, and his poetry and creative nonfiction have appeared in Third Coast and Indiana Review. As a journalist, his cover stories, features, and reviews appeared in such periodicals as Leo Weekly and The Courier Journal. Dominic Russ Combs comes to Stanford University via Lubbock, Texas, where he received a PhD in English from Texas Tech. He's currently at work on a novel and a collection of stories. This story was selected by Jim Shepard for publication in the winter 2014 issue of the Carolina Quarterly. You can find more of Dom's work at his website, dominicruss-combs.com.
1: Blood by Blood. May called at 5 a.m., screaming about Jamie Don, and it took Richie a minute to patch together through his hangover what exactly his brother had done. By May's account, Jamie Don had broken into her place in Glomar and Glomar had run off with their one-year-old, Annie, in the middle of the night. May said he'd been threatening to reclaim their daughter since she'd put the restraining order on him back in February. Richie had heard Jamie Don speak of getting Annie back, but he figured his brother's half-baked schemes were mere fantasies a way of coping with the fact he was no longer able to see his only daughter. "'Where is he?' she said as Richie stepped outside to the patio to get better reception. "'I know you know where that crazy son of a bitch hides out.' And he did. After his brother's smash-and-grab runs into Lexington or Frankfort, Jamie Don liked to camp along the MTR step just north of Hazard. Richie pictured the blasted shelves that climbed like a staircase into the sun." The South Bluffs, though stripped, still held several banks of concealing trees that looked down on the passage into the camp. Back before Richie enlisted, they used to go there to celebrate when they hawked a stolen car or blew out an ATM with a pipe bomb. They would spend what they'd made on T-bones and good bourbon and rile up the divide, blaring country and metal from the car radio. I don't know where he is. Richie lit a smoke to sharpen up. Don't lie to me, Richie. He's got her. He's got my baby girl. A breeze rustled through the trees, lifting the tattered awning above his head. The Pleiades came into view between the shade and the frame. He took another drag. I told you I don't know. Well, you can tell it to the police because they're coming to see you first. And when they get here, I'll tell them the same. He went back inside his trailer and began to search for a shirt and a clean pair of pants. He couldn't find the keys to his truck. "'If he harms one hair on Annie's head, I'll see him dead. "'I swear to Jesus I will.' "'He found his keys under a Wendy's bag by the sink. "'He checked the time on the microwave. "'If he left then, he could be at the mines by 7.30. "'It never crossed his mind to hurt Annie,' he said. "'But he kidnapped her, Richie,' she said. "'What the hell do you think that's doing?' He hung up the phone and headed for his truck. He could call to work from the road, but it wasn't going to do much good. Though he hadn't missed a day since he started a year ago, Richie knew his stellar attendance when it means shit to a shift boss who had 50 skids coming in from Cincinnati and no forklift driver to unload them. Still, he had to get to Annie and Jamie Don before the feds did. Being the only family Jamie Don had left, Richie knew it was on him to bring his brother in. It had been over a month since Richie last heard from Jamie Don, and that email was weird, even for him. Richie thought about his brother's words the whole moonless drive. Jamming each paragraph with several links to sites like Rapture Ready and theatomichorseman.com, Jamie Don urged him to check the Armageddon indexes on each page because he was beginning to see uniform accumulations. Brother, Jamie Don wrote, the machine of reckoning has clicked into gear. The earth has finally rejected mankind and will soon vomit us into the void. Tsunamis, earthquakes, hurricanes, one by one our moral and economic collapses have found their exact correlative. I am the shepherd of these ravaging winds. I must guide Annie into her position as one of the final few. At... At first, Richie thought he was messing with him, and his reply said as much, but Richie began to wonder when he didn't hear back. Jamie Don didn't start in with this Earth Armageddon business until after his separation from May. He began showing up at her apartment, didn't call ahead, didn't knock, just sat on the lawn and watched May and Annie through the windows. Then the restraining order was filed, and Jamie Don began spending more time in the woods than out of them. He found Jamie Don's tent ten yards in from the canopy line. His niece, alone inside, slept in her basket. A small electric fan blew directly into her lap. He stepped back out and shaded his eyes to scan the blasted shelves of the strip mine. Jamie Don was nowhere to be found. For a moment, Richie thought about sneaking Annie back to Glomar without confrontation, but then he saw the charred remains of some hustlers in the fire pit, folds with the ink of their breasts bubbled and browned and cindered the neat row of whiskey bottles running alongside the circled stones doubled his concerns the glass of each looked untouched and spotless as if cracked open and drained without a sip he checked annie's diaper then surveyed the camp his brother was dug in for the long haul mres rice powdered milk powdered eggs boxes of vitamins cases of baby food canned goods first aid kits It wasn't that Richie thought someone couldn't live in the mines. He had made camp in far worse places during his hitch in Afghanistan, but he knew that prosperity and survival were synonymous to Jamie Dawn. Life never had to improve if he was getting by, especially when there weren't that many opportunities to begin with. Both of them had this way of thinking beaten into them by their father, and if things played out how Jamie Dawn wanted, Annie would wind up no better. Every scrounging day, a blessing. Richie began to see how such rationale made the end of civilization an enticement. At least then his off-the-grid skills could finally put him ahead, the fool, Richie thought. He hasn't learned a goddamn thing. Richie kept up relations with May after the divorce, calling her twice a month so at least he would be able to have a positive impact on Annie's life. May didn't even have a checking account. She paid for everything in cash or money order. Of course, Jamie Don never kept anything under his name. Richie tried to set an example by starting a college fund. It only amounted to $211, but it was something they could build on. Looking at the stockpile of goods, he realized how pointless his efforts had been. Richie took one of the empty bottles and chucked it at the sun. The glass crashed with a soft pop in the ravine a hundred yards below. He unfolded a lawn chair and waited. The heat piggybacked his hangover and began to push down into his stomach, making him woozy he grabbed a gob of ice from the cooler and squeezed it until his wrist froze to the bone clouds approached from the west and he hoped for shade but they broke apart when they crossed the hot cap of the steppe, baked back into the blue to hell with this richie said he got up to collect annie and leave but then a hand from behind tugged on richie's shoulder and he startled Jamie don stepped around him and entered the tent there you are richie said Jamie Don lifted Annie from the basket and switched off the fan. He began to feed her the bottle he'd brought up from the creek. His skin was both tanned and pink underneath, grilled almost medium rare. That water is poison, Ricky said. Jamie Don smiled at Annie. I filtered it just like how you were trained. Not even the 82nd Airborne can save that toxic shit, Richie said. You might as well give her an alkaline battery to suck on. Jamie Don turned the bottle up to make sure Annie got her fill. Slowly, her eyes closed. You're paranoid, he said. Somebody ought to be. Jamie Don chuckled. All right, he said. What's my sentence? You want to string me up for the night? He made some soft coyote noises to amuse Annie and played at nibbling on her toes. They're calling you Mr. Mason the Herald, Richie said. The article described an unidentified assailant who would mace then rob employees of various restaurants as they tried to make their overnight deposits. Two Applebees and a Waffle House had netted his brother something like ten grand the previous weekend. The mace tipped Richie off. It was a non-lethal weapon. When Richie last saw him in April, Jamie Don often remarked how using non-lethal weapons in robberies would mean lighter sentencing if he ever got arrested. Do they know it's me? No, Richie said with a nod to Annie, but they will. You're getting reckless. Don't cross me on this, Richie. His eyes glistened like a knife blade by firelight. I wrote how I feel. But you've got to see that you've jeopardized the time i put in with May. Richie quickly wiped his mouth. I was trying to pave a way for you to... I was trying to pave a way for you down the road. No one said you had to. Like I had a choice, Richie said, digging his knuckles into his hip. Like you asked permission, he said. Richie stepped forward. Do you want Annie table dancing at Domino Kings before the 12th grade? Richie took a deep breath to settle down and let his hands fall to his sides. It might take years, but we can fix this. You're still talking as if the world's going to last. Well, the Armageddon you're waiting for might be the one you've invited. May's people called the kidnapping in last night. You're an amber alert now. They won't come here. Nobody knows this place but us, Jimmy Don said. He brushed a fly away from Annie's lips and then licked his thumb to wipe a smudge of yellow dirt from her shoulder. So that's your plan, Richie said. Take root here with the bugs and the heat and the poison water until she dies, or you do. Jack Rindling lasted nearly a decade out at Salvo Pass. Frustrated, Richie swatted the air. Riddling was one of their dad's friends who blamed the government for his wife's cancer. When she died, he moved his family into the woods in defiance. Riddling later suffered a fatal heart attack, leaving the children to fend for themselves. They were caught scavenging in a gas station dumpster when CPS moved them to Louisville for foster care. Richie did his best to relax and rested on his heels. What Jack Riddling did, damned them all, he said. I still don't think Sally ever learned to read. I'd never let anything like that happen to Annie, he said making his eyes as big as he could. That's not even an option. You can't believe that, Richie said. Living out here is tough enough without an infant to nurture and protect. Jimmy Don studied his silhouette on the ground and then twisted till the dark curve of Annie's head over his elbow merged into the shadow of his chest. Blood by blood, he said. Annie has to know my mind to outlast the dying times ahead. Jesus, Richie said at least tell me you have some bourbon left don't worry he said i didn't pour out all the bourbon sanctifying the camp jamie don kissed annie on the forehead i saved a bottle or two for visitors jamie don stood sentry outside the tent scanning the canopy line it was past noon and he was shirtless and dripping with sweat annie slept inside the heat seeming less of a bother to her after jamie don wiped her down with a cold rag from the cooler and repositioned her crib in front of the fan. Richie was down to just his boxers and boots. He lit a smoke and asked if Jamie Don wanted a drink, hoping he could get him drunk and more manageable, but his brother didn't even turn to say no. Instead, he asked Richie if next time he could take his smoke outside. Richie studied the Glock and the mace in Jamie Don's half-open pack He thought about dousing Jamie Don and tying him down, but then Richie knew it'd be World War III when he snuck back to untie him. Besides, he didn't want to get any on Annie. We slept up top last night with a nice view of Daddy, Jamie Don said. He was talking about the peak of the collapsed Molson mines just to the west. Their father had been killed there when lightning struck the mountaintop and ignited a methane pocket a half mile below. The shaft blasted out like a shotgun barrel. "'killing all six miners inside. "'Ritchie was twelve at the time, Jamie Don ten. "'Ritchie stepped outside the tent with his smoke "'and a bottle of Four Roses. "'Biggest tombstone in Perry County.' "'Jamie Don lifted his head to the invisible step above. "'At least that one's green and not demolition to shit like how they do now.' "'He continued staring at nothing in the sky. "'I still get those nightmares.' You don't remember, Richie said, but there wasn't a lightning strike for seven weeks before the accident. It's a shame to even think about Jamie Don began, grinding the ball of his right foot into the gravel. Not even a hard hat to root out of the rubble. Richie could tell he was testing to see if his opinions on their father had changed. They hadn't. Their father used to get his load on and seek out whatever dinged-up thing he could find and then beat the two of them with this metal spatula until they squealed who did what. Once, their father even stuck Jamie Don's fingers in a toaster because he thought he was stealing change from his dresser. Hillbilly fricassee, Richie said. Jamie Don clenched his jaw. That's dad you're talking about. Like I could forget, Richie said. You keep acting like he never did anything for us. Shit, Richie said. The best thing that man ever did was go to work that day. Jamie Don hauled off toward the tent. Richie began to hound him from behind. And I don't even know why you worship him like you do, the way you mourn him. Jamie Don stopped. He toughened us up, taught us how to survive. Jamie Don stepped inside the tent. Richie took another quick pull of whiskey. He only needed sips to keep his buzz on and his courage up. The last time they fought was before Richie shipped out for Afghanistan four years ago, and he vowed never to hit Jamie Don again. Their mother was alive, and Jamie Don was still at the house. Richie told him he had to stop with the petty theft and the guns while living under her roof because she was sick and couldn't take it. Jamie Don called him a hypocrite, and Richie broke his nose with a quick hook. You will join the world, Richie said, striking him again. Jamie Don didn't even try to defend himself. He just pinched his nose together to staunch the blood and said that Richie was an idiot to think the army would save him. He said Richie was just looking for the quickest way out. Jamie Don came out after changing Annie's diaper. Yesterday, I came across some pokeweed out on the trail, he said, breaking the silence. I'm never touching that shit again, Richie said. No, Richie, I was just thinking that soon folks will be calling that a feast. Richie splashed the bottle against his lips. What's got you convinced it's all done for? The hill was white with heat. Have you seen TV? Richie nearly choked to laugh. Jamie Don smiled, but Richie knew he didn't think it was as funny as he did. Don't you get it, Jamie Don? Raised his elbows above his head to vent his underarms. It's already over. We're scraping the bottom of the barrel as we live and breathe. Surviving in places like this is all we'll have left. The bugs in the wood began to buzz wildly as if to retaliate against the sun. But just as suddenly as their noise flared up, it died, flash-fried out of the air. Jamie Don brought his hands back down to his hips. I'm not crazy. One amber alert and a restraining order tell it different. Jamie Don stepped inside the tent to grab Annie. He came back out with his arms through the cradle and a fresh bottle of water. If only I had been her father, Richie thought. I'm going down to the creek to piss and cool off, Jamie Dawn said. Richie glanced away. Be sure to aim downstream. Ants invaded the tent that afternoon. Jamie Dawn and Richie took the brunt of the attack. Annie, luckily, was only bitten twice on the foot. She cried for an hour as Jamie Dawn iced her welts. Richie continued to scold his brother as they worked to move the camp. You've got to check the perimeter At least fifty yards out for signs of hostile species, he said, as they washed out their gear in the creek. That's basic stuff, Jamie Don quietly took every word. It wasn't until sundown that they were able to reset the tent. Jamie Don lit a fire to smoke out the mosquitoes and cook dinner. The two brothers ate in silence. Nightfall did little to cool things off. In the blackout woods, the insects creaked like unoiled machinery. The blasted shelves glowed ultraviolet beneath the light of the new moon. At around ten, Jamie Don put Annie to bed, came back out and sat down across the fire pit. "'You're not prepared for this,' Richie said. "'You could stay and show me.' Richie took another drink from the bottle and held his bare feet to the light of the fire. Tiny red bumps dotted his calves. Jamie Don lifted his eyes from the flames. "'You'd never let me hang before. "'You'd never kidnapped a child before, either.' "'My child,' Jamie Dawn said. "'Richie lit another smoke as Jamie Dawn began to burn the day's trash. "'Diapers and paper plates smoked up to block the stars. "'The garbage bag emptied. "'He returned to his stoop and stared at Richie across the flames. "'So you're just going to sit there? "'What do you want me to say?' "'I don't know anything.' Tell me about all the war hero ass you've gotten since you've been back. No women, Richie said. Why not? You used to be the king of Tao, No interest. Jesus, Jamie Don said. They really did fuck you up over there, huh? As Richie relaced his boots, he told his brother about how the 82nd had been assigned to the Orzagon province to suppress various factions of the Taliban that had dug themselves into small mountain villages. Towns like mud wall mazes that made it impossible to gauge where the shots came from. Then there were the dogs in the streets. Ritchie couldn't believe how many. All the time they had to keep them quiet so their barks wouldn't give away their position. Some of the dogs would even come up and lick Ritchie's hand as he fired at the enemy. Out on the hump, things got worse. Ritchie went on to tell about when his unit got pinned down in a gully about 30 clicks outside Gazab. After two hours of continuous fire, the UAV they ordered finally bombed their positions in the cliffs. At the next string of houses, they came across this little girl buried up to her chest like a molar in the gum-red clay. At first they thought she was dead, but then she started shouting. She couldn't have been more than 12 years old, which was hard to tell given that her nose and ears had been hacked off and her head was shaved. It It was how husbands kept their child brides from running off. They dug her out, but the second they pulled her free, the girl rushed for a blade that had been stashed beneath a stone. She stabbed one of the soldiers in the leg, nicking his femoral artery, where she had to shoot her. Jamie Don thought for a moment and then slouched forward. Didn't she know you were there to help? She'd been beaten and brainwashed so bad she probably thought we'd come to rape her. Monsters, Jamie Don said. Don't you see that's how they're going to paint you up here? Hillbillies and towelheads are all the same when the hammer comes down. Jamie Don grabbed a rock and threw it into the woods below. It slapped through some leaves before cracking against a branch like a baseball bat. That's what I've been saying all along. The end, it's on its way. No woman, no job. Your trailer is so busted you might as well be living out in the weather anyway. Nobody needs you, brother, he said. But I do. Annie needs you. Richie took a drink and then swirled the bottle a horrible vision began to fuse in his imagination it was of Annie seven or eight years old alone in the woods beneath the faceless burr of her head her mind without language beat like wings in a rookery i can prevent this he thought i can take her back or at least keep her safe while we hold out and plan a run into mexico or canada With time, I could straighten him out. Jamie Don continued to stare at his brother. Well, his eyes said. Richie took another drink and spat into the fire. Early that next morning, Richie absconded with his brother's glock to the blasted shelf to call the police. He put the battery and SIM card back into his cell phone and dialed. He'd taken a bottle and one of the lawn chairs along, too, and after telling the Perry County Sheriff's Department where they could find the camp, he tossed the phone off the cliff and sat and drank. It would take the cops an hour on the road to arrive. Then they'd have to marshal forces and coordinate their approach. All told, Richie figured it wouldn't be until the afternoon before anything went down. It was already hot. Before he left to make the call, Richie soaked his shirt in the cooler and knotted it around his head the fabric had gone from bone dry to dripping with sweat in less than twenty minutes he shook his head and buried his chin briefly into his joined palms this is the smart play he said and cocked the gun it ain't me richie started shooting to draw his brother away from the tent at first richie shot at the bugs crawling on the rocks then he said his father's name aloud as he took aim at the molson mine and fired he flipped the lawn chair around and popped a few rounds at the sun. Annie began to wail. Startled and shirtless, Jamie Don sprung from the tent and sprinted over. What the fuck, Richie? You woke Annie. Richie kicked the lawn chair aside. Bearded and sun-raw, Jamie Don panted in the heat. Annie continued to cry in the distance. They're coming, Richie said, jerking the shirt from his head and flinging it to the ground. Where? Jamie Don quickly scanned the tree line below. The police. I called them. They're on their way. Jamie Don looked at the pistol in his brother's hand. Richie kept it flat against his leg. You're going to have to shoot me to keep us here. No, Richie said as he cocked the round out of the chamber and then released the clip. We're having this out. "'You know you can't hit me,' Jamie Don said and pointed to his nose. "'He then turned back for the tent, but Richie quickly reared back "'and threw the gun as hard as he could at his brother. "'When Jamie Don covered, Richie charged. "'The advantage was Richie's early on when he got under his brother's knees "'and planted him on his back.' The air pushed out of Jamie Don's lungs as he thumped upon the ground, but his brother managed to slip Richie's hold, and before he knew it, Jamie Don was on top and pissed off like Richie had never seen. He dug his knee into Richie's neck, and his head went purple from lack of oxygen. Still, the burning stones on Richie's bare shoulders kept him sharp just long enough to give one last heave and sneak a forearm to his brother's groin. Richie was back on top and pinning Jamie down with his butt on his sternum. The blood began to flow freely again through Richie's shoulders and arms. Bastard Jamie Don said, Dickless Army trash, you don't know, you're no father. And neither are you, not any more, Richie said. Jamie Don continued to hiss and writhe beneath Richie's knee. Kill me, Jamie Don said, with more growl than language. Kill me. He began to repeat the phrase, heaving the words from his throat like hunks of broken glass. Kill me. Richie jabbed his brother in the face just to get him to stop. A red lump quickly swelled from his brother's cheek. Something deep inside Jamie Don relented and his arms and chest went slack. Jamie Don's expression had nothing but skull behind it to keep it up. Richie turned away, horrified. Neither of them would survive this. Jamie Don would die without her and Richie couldn't live with taking away the only good thing in his brother's life. Ritchie's eyes followed the long scar of blasted rock that pointed to the Molson Peak. "'I'm sorry,' Ritchie said, and led his brother up. He dusted the dirt and gravel from his brother's shoulders. "'I won't let them take you alone.' Jamie Don gathered himself. "'We're going to run. Too late for that,' Ritchie said. Annie continued to wail from the tent. "'The best we can do is try to keep her safe.' Jamie Don lifted his head and listened to his daughter. Richie set the bottom of his fist down on Jamie Don's chest. We're putting our stake in right here, Richie said. And when they come for us, they'll have to pry us out like teeth.
0: Hey, Dom. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you for appearing on Off the Page and sharing your work with us. Um, I'd just love to start by asking you what was the inspiration for this story? How did it start?
1: Well, I actually had a very specific uh, inspiration. I, you know, I was doing some freelance journalism work and I, you know, just going into the office, I think somebody showed me some pictures of a uh, strip mine, you know, uh, mountaintop removal, essentially. And I looked at that landscape, the uh, decimation of it um, and just the scope and the size. And I, I was like, you know, I need to put this in a story somehow And I thought, well, you know, what activity can you have in this kind of barren, lifeless place? And I thought, well, outlaws could hole up there. And it kind of started from there. Uh, The kidnapping thing is kind of funny. A lot of people don't know this about uh, Colonel Sanders, but he actually kidnapped his daughter when she was like 12 or 13 and like held. And for some reason, those two things intersected in my imagination. I kind of took it off, took away with it from there, you know, ran with it.
0: Is that is it typical for you to begin with place or setting?
1: You know, I, I had thought about writing for a long time in my twenties, and I I was I didn't know what to write about, and then it turned out like Kentucky was the thing. You know, it was the thing that I had that I had access to, that I could turn into literary value or currency, and uh, and yeah, place became a. It's the place. Culture is a sacred place. That's what the word means, and uh, so I I, I kind of sometimes start with place. I think about. A town or, um, for example, in this story, Glomar is where my grandfather was actually from. That's where they had their house, my grandfather and grandmother. It's a real town, Glomar. Only hillbillies can <laughs> come with such wonderful names.
0: And what about the um, sort of survivalist Armageddon mm-hmm. mindset mm-hmm. that Jamie Don has taken on? Do mm-hmm. you is that something that you've just observed maybe as a journalist uh-huh. or encountered in the world or uh-huh. what was sort of the inspiration for that aspect of the story
1: but uh, at my uh, graduate program a, a disaster porn was kind of like a, th- a thing that they were talking about like structuring courses around like Armageddon every movie at the time was basically the end of the world was you know it just seems such a intricate part to our culture now that we our, our hero narratives involved the destruction of humanity, you know, and it just seemed like an interesting psych, psychic thing to like you know, maybe pull a coyote and like step dial it up a notch, you know. But I was really conscious at first I was thinking about maybe having Jamie Don being the military vet. But then, you know, I did some uh, interviews and stuff with some vets and stuff. And I thought it would be the the better move to have the, like the, the sane person, the damaged person, that damaging doesn't often like lead to – Bad decisions that actually the person that never kind of assimilated that that had the, you know, some chronic issues, chronic mental issues.
0: Well, there's the way in which it seems like Jamie Don's mentality, although stemming from maybe some mental health issues, also stems from this awareness that they don't have many options Uh in life. I mean, he has that speech where he says to him, like, you might as well be living outdoors you know you don't have anything going for yourself either right.
1: i think that's an important point i'm glad you you've you tied those two things together yeah uh, there's not a lot in these communities i mean the reason why they're dilapidated, is it's you know coal came and went it doesn't it's not there anymore you know i i go to see my you know grandparents way back when There's still coal from it spilled off the trucks on the sides of the streets and the trucks hadn't been going through for years but they're still like that's how much coal they they and I think, uh, you know, the environmental angle was very important to me, too, Just say, so, like, th- these landscapes are ruined. And not only are these landscapes ruined, um, the communities around them are ruined as well. Uh, and another thing about that process of strip mining is that there are all types of toxic things in the, in the ground in that, you know, so it can be even radioactive. So the water is ruined. You know, it's just it's, a, it's just a cycle. So th- the Armageddon, he sees like the end of the world. I mean, he's looking at it. Like he's seeing what we're doing to the earth. So it's not I didn't mean to like be dismissive of of that correlation he had drawn, but he's living in the you know, he's seen this ravaging, you know, and uh, prosperity is not something that they've ever encountered.
0: And is it difficult when you're working on a piece of fiction and you have these uh, convictions about um, about class and industry and the Mm -hmm. environment and yet you don't want to be didactic i mean how do you because i guess it's so interesting to hear you talk about um the sort of environmental um threat caused by strip mining because of course i I remember the lines about um the the horrible water but i i I didn't feel as if you were preaching at me about about this and so how do you sort of like embed that within the text of a story
1: it's such a tough thing I think with a story it's like you, you surrender this the possibility the dramatic possibilities of of these two brothers and having this the real stakes of this very vulnerable child in between them um, so you, you you have to capitulate to the story first and I think one way I, I was conscious of not creating propaganda I guess is what environmental propaganda even though the world needs as much as that as it can get but I think for me you know, the story always takes precedence. So, I, you know, I had the person champion, like kind of pointing these things out, being the most kind of conflicted, complicated character in Jamie don Jamie Don sees this. Richie doesn't, you know, so kind of like, you know, cutting, cutting the, the drink there a little bit, like watering it down a little bit so it's not so you know, overt, you know. Um, th- there's a place for stuff like that in essays. So the, the sad part is, is I think, like, in Kentucky, we're so used to it, too, that it's hard to, m- you know, make anything stand out. We know it's happening. We know that strip mining's happening. and We know how terrible it is. Uh, but it's like a lot of forces in this country right now.
0: Did it take a while to sort of figure out uh, Richie's trajectory or arc in the story? Did you know early on that he was going to sort of join forces with his brother at the last minute or?
1: Yeah, that, that was like, you know, you kind of just try to listen to the story where it takes you. Originally, I tried to tell this thing in first person and then we come to the end. I had that last line was always in my, in my mind, it's the last line. And for some reason I wasn't ever going to change that, even though some writers and workshop were like, maybe that's not, you know, and I was like, I'm going to stick with it. And, uh, but yeah, I think that's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's it's a contradiction to, you know, in in Richie to know that this is the wrong move, but at the same time to to basically side with familial love, you know, which is something they had been both deprived of growing up. They you know, they didn't have that. So I think uh it becomes kind of like a, you know, it's a fatal ending. It's 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 a noirist ending, but uh but it also has this moment of like a gesture tur- towards love and you know brotherly love. And in an environment where you grow up, you know, in an abusive situation, uh, y- y- your rest of the family is like they're they're enemies too, even though they don't hurt you. But you know, you need to protect yourself, so you sometimes throw a sibling under the bus or something like that. So, in a sense, that ending is also triumphant in in a in a weird way of of overcoming. Uh, the obstacles of their abuse of childhood, him s- siding with the brother saying, I'm not going to undermine him. I am going to do the thing to help him, even though it's kind of like, you know, a Butch Cassidy and Sundance kid type of thing. So it's complicated. It's liminal. It's this gray area where there's no right answer. Uh I guess the, the real right answer would just be to surrender. But that's, that's in the that's an abstract situation from this story you know you don't ever look to literature <laughs> to, 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 as an information on how to behave you know the good, good literature good stories is always about trouble it's always about instabilities and trying to make that trouble have as as deep a complexion a, a deep human complexion as possible a complicated, messy complexion, a complexion where there is no right answer is as I love putting basically story begins for me when I know there's not going to be a right answer in this, in this scenario. You,
0: know? well, you also have him sort of break his own promise to himself by mm-hmm. hitting his brother mm-hmm. at the end. And that's mm-hmm. what sort of triggers this realization mm-hmm. that, yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's interesting. Yeah. Cause it feels like a heroic gesture and yet mm-hmm. the reader, it's, it's kind it's of like vainglorious screaming. No, yeah,
1: right. Yeah.
0: Um, and, and, and also because Richie has seen like someone who is trying to make a better life for himself uh-huh. in whatever way he can, he's, you know, not blowing up ATMs anymore. I right. Think. With pipe bombs. With yeah. pipe bombs.
1: No, he had a job, you know, he's a forklift operator. That mm-hmm. was his, I threw that in. Starting
0: him. the college fund, you yeah. know, he's, he's the guy who's trying to do the right thing.
1: But at the same time, it's a, it's a futile, it's a futile endeavor, you know, I mean, like yeah, like his advancement isn't going to be great as long as he stays in where he is and uh yeah i think maybe some of what jamie don comes back at him hits him hits him to the core you know and he, he realized, okay even my normalization even me trying to make you assimilate and be a part of the world what example am i really And, you know, when the forces, when the forces that have shaped your life have been undermining your whole life, essentially, you know, you don't most, you know, some people join the military for noble reasons, but a lot of people in that area, they join because literally it's the best job that they're going to ever have. You know, Octavio Paz said this thing that always captured my attention. Uh, He talking about growing up and he was talking about growing up in rural Mexico and he said, it always felt to him that the present was someplace else, like it was in New York or Mexico City or Los Angeles. And and I think you feel that, too, in a, perf- in a lot of peripheral places. Just even me being in California now is kind of like a dream life. It's like it, California, Stanford, all this stuff had this dreamlike purchase on my imagination. And to come here and actually be here is is surreal. <laughs>
0: well, let's talk about you then and sort of your path from <laughs> – from your home to this writing life.
1: <laughs> it was a long, long and winding road, man. Uh, I, you know, I was talking earlier today about like, you know, you, you, a lot of people go to college because that's what you're supposed to do. I had no sense of uh, <laughs> professionalization or anything. I, I was an English and philosophy major at Kentucky. I went to Kentucky and uh, I really dug ideas and stuff. And I thought about books. I had no idea what a making a book really meant though. Like. Genre stuff like that. Uh, but I liked writing. I liked sentences. I started trying doing poetry and stuff. And I didn't really know what an MFA program was or any of that stuff until I don't know twenty six or twenty seven. And then I started to figure figure some things out. And um, and again, I didn't know that writing about Kentucky would be that. I thought that like nobody would care. I, I like you know. I thought that I had to write big idea stuff. You know, like I you know, like big twists, big endings, and fabulous stuff you know and then i started to realize as writing people were actually responding to like my portraitures just basically from my experience especially the blue collar stuff i mean i did welding moving groundskeeping fry cook i had a lot of a lot of you know tough jobs that didn't have a lot of future to them you know for a long time i knew there was something in me that needed expression that needed Validation in the world, you know, and uh, I just decided I bet it on, I bet on myself and I went all in with the writing, took my first grade of writing classes, did the MFA, did the PhD, gradually got here, you know. But uh, the surprising thing for a long time in my early 20s, I thought I had to write about something else. Like I had to invent it, like, you know, uh,
0: I think it, it, it can it often takes a really long time to find I, one's material, even though it might seem totally uh-huh, obvious and self-evident uh-huh. at that point, but yeah.
1: I think it's it's you know I, I sometimes worry about the young writers that are twenty three and they like they their first ideas is like they just resonate, they hit you know and they're just like you know and it just flies off from there and I'm like you know that next thing though what, what are you going to do with the next thing and or, had you learned anything along the way you know I think uh, failure is the greatest the greatest uh i don't know motivator and educator yeah you know and the more you have of it the more you also appreciate what you get you know and like something like this is like so humbling and you know um it still doesn't feel like it happens to me it's you know mark is a stegner and everybody else is a stegner and i'm just here watching it <laughs> oh you know? i think i mean you're a jones i now. think
0: everyone feels that way yeah um uh so to um continue with what we were just talking about um does does research or does i mean just all these different jobs you've had how often do those play into your fiction and what is Mm -hmm. sort of the relationship between Mm -hmm. real real world and, Mm -hmm. and fiction
1: it's more than just the jobs themselves it's the mentality involved of being you know in these positions that don't have a lot of money and that that feeling that you have of that's what I tap into this blue collar idea, which is this idea of like how you know how, how can you better yourself? That frustration of of not making as much as you think that you're worth was it
0: difficult? And I, I apologize in advance if this question feels overly personal. Was it was it difficult to when, you're, when you when you, you use that phrase, you know, bet on yourself and commit mm-hmm. to writing? Mm-hmm. Did you find it difficult to to justify that choice? God, yes, right. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, you just hope that the thing that's inside you is worthwhile enough. And I guess I'll, I'll bring it to this. You know, I actually came out here like uh, 10 years ago, and that's when I decided to write. Actually, I went down to uh, Pigeon Point. My mom was doing travel nursing. I, I came out to hang out with her for a week during Christmas. And I went to, you know, I was just I had that job welding, and I was like miserable, though. I mean, it was I liked the job. I liked who I worked with and everything, but it wasn't. For me, it wasn't the thing. I felt like I was wasting away, you know, um, and that time was just getting away from me. And I sat at Pigeon Point and I looked out at the ocean. I listened, put my headphones on, listened to La Mer by Debussy. And uh, I came away. I was like, fuck it. You know, I'm going to do this thing. whether. And it took a lot of courage, man, you know, Um essentially being 30 with nothing and betting on writing, betting on yourself, you know. I don't know if I'd recommend it to anyone. <laughs> yeah. uh, but uh, I think it's also like that kind of uh, pressure makes me sharp. It makes me commit totally to my work. Me looking at the computer screen. OK, nobody's going to catch me if I fall. I better go hard. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> cool. Oh, good. Uh, thank you. Wonderful. Thank you so yeah. much, Tom, for being on Off the Page.
1: Well, thank you. It was wonderful being here.
0: This episode was produced by Alessandra Wallner, Maddie Curtis, and our talented team of producers, editors, and coaches. Aaron Wu, Sienna White, Aparna Verma, Yui Lee, Claudia Haymack, Christopher Laboa, Victoria Wan, and Jet Hayward. Thanks to Leland Quarterly for their editorial help, especially Zui Zhao. Thanks to Jonah Willingans for his supervision, and to Ivan Bolin, Christina Ablaza and Osei Jackson at the Creative Writing Program. For their generous support to the Stanford Storytelling Project, we'd like to thank the Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education, Stanford Arts, and Bruce Braden.